I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16 today. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. But I promise this will probably be the last time, but I'm going to back us up. Because this is, we just need to hear where Peter's getting this from this morning. So I'm actually going to start where Peter starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, if necessary, for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you rejoice in him with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was predicting when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Hmm. Well, friends, today is a big day in our home. Four years ago today... Our daughter, Nora, was born into the world. It was one of the best days ever. But yesterday was almost one of the worst days ever. Because what Nora wanted more than anything for her birthday was donuts. Not just any donuts. Pink frosted donuts with sprinkles. 
Okay, that's what she wanted. So after being assured by the bakery on Friday that they'd have plenty of those for us to pick up on Saturday, I headed out yesterday morning to pick up the donuts. But when I got there and walked through the doors, looked at their vast case, there was not a pink frosted sprinkle donut to be found. So I called Emily to share the bad news and I told her, I'll try to figure something out. She then broke the news to Nora. I heard that there was then much weeping and gnashing of teeth, <laughs> along with the pronouncement, my birthday is ruined. Yeah, pretty bad, huh? But then, just when all hope was lost, I found the prized pink sprinkled donuts at another shop. So I called Emily, and when Emily told Nora the good news that Daddy was bringing home the donuts, she completely changed her behavior. Her face lit up, and she now had a happy hope. And that makes sense, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been strange if when Nora found out the good news of what was coming, she kept acting the same way she did before? Because knowing what was being brought to her should change the way she acted now, even before it arrived. See, two things shaped the way Nora behaved. If I can give myself a little credit here. Her future and her father. And that might be a really small, silly example. I get it. But guess what Peter's going to tell us this morning about things way more important than donuts. He's going to say two things to shape the way Christians behave. Our future and our father. And just like Nora got the good news that her problem had been dealt with and good things were being brought to her, Peter wants us to remember that our greatest problem has been dealt with and with, there are good things being brought to us. And it would be strange and wrong, wouldn't it, if that good news didn't change the way we live now? So today we have just two main points. Taking it easy on you, last week we had like seven. I got two for you today. Two ways that our lives should look different because of our future and our Father. Peter's going to call us to, number one, hope fully on grace. And number two, be holy like God. Okay, so that's our roadmap of where we're going. But before we get started in that one, perhaps the most important word in our whole passage is that very first word. In verse 13, therefore. Now why does that word matter so much? Because so far in this letter, if you notice this, Peter hasn't told us to do anything. So many people think of the Bible as just a, a list of rules and regulations of what you ought to do. But have you noticed, Peter's been talking to us for 12 verses, and so far he hasn't given us a single command. Instead, he spent 12 verses celebrating all that God has done for us. He told us how we are God's elect exiles, chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge, set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for being marked as his own with his blood. He's told us that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's told us that he's given us an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He told us that this hope is being kept in heaven for us by God. He told us God is also guarding us by his power for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
He told us that God's using all of our trials to do whatever's needed to prove and purify our faith so that when Jesus is revealed, it results in praise and honor and glory. He's told us that God has given us a love and a trust for Jesus and a joy in him that we can't even put into words. He told us that our faith has a finish line and when we reach it, we'll obtain the salvation of our souls. This salvation, he said, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament, they eagerly looked forward to and what the angels above longed to look into. And he said, all that salvation, friends, he says, that's for us. And then comes the word, therefore. And what follows it are commands on how we are to live. But up until now, there have been no commands, no imperatives, only good news, only indicatives. Indicatives declare something to us. Imperatives expect something from us. Indicatives tell us what's true. Imperatives tell us what to do. And the order here is absolutely critical. Because before telling us what we ought to do, Peter first tells us what God has done for us. And only then does Peter say, okay, okay, now that we've, we've got that clear of what God has done, now let me tell you how that changes the way you ought to live. And we see this pattern all over the Bible. God tells us what he's done for us in the gospel, and then we find the word, therefore, telling us how that good news transforms the way you and I are to live our days. In fact, one commentator said this, and I think he's right. He said, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Now, he doesn't mean that in every verse you'll actually find that word, but the idea, the concept is that everything we're told to do is, has a therefore in front of it. As Christians, all of our obedience flows out of the good news that God has rescued us. Think about, when you think about obeying God, what comes to mind? My guess is for many of us, Ten Commandments, right? That's, if you ask anybody on the street, what does it mean to obey? Like, well, do what the Ten Commandments say. That's where God tells us to obey. But do you know what it says right before the Ten Commandments? It says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then it starts with, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see what God's doing? Even in the, the textbook exhibit A of what obedience is required of us, God grounds all that he calls Israel to do in what he's already done for them. Because he's their God who rescued them from slavery, therefore they should live this way. And we see the same order all over the New Testament. Paul opens the book of Ephesians with three glorious chapters of gospel truth. No commandments. Then, flowing out of that, comes this hinge in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Followed by three chapters of commandments. Colossians starts with more than a chapter of him proclaiming the greatness of Christ. And it's not until chapter 2, verse 6, you get your first command. And what's the transition? Therefore. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. One more time. Romans. Romans has 
not three, not six, but 11 chapters unpacking God's mercy in the gospel. 11 chapters to make sure we understand how good and glorious his mercy is before we finally get to chapter 12 and the commands that follow it. And what does it say at the beginning of chapter 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Friends, this is what we're meant to see. This is gospel-shaped living. It always starts with what God has done and is doing for us in Christ and therefore tells us how we are to live. And if you reverse that order and you try to jump straight to how we should live first, just flip open a Bible as a non-Christian and say, okay, God, tell me what to do. If you try to skip to right to what we are to do, that leads to empty moralism and dead religion. Instead, the gospel tells us that we obey from our acceptance in Christ, never to get it or keep our acceptance in Christ. So you might hear us use the phrase around here sometimes of being gospel-centered. It's on our new signs out there. One of the things we mean by that is this, is that as Christians, we never move on from the good news of what God has done for us in Christ And then we say, well, we're moving on to level two where we learn to obey. The Christian life doesn't work like that. Our obedience is always grounded in and empowered by the gospel. Always. The therefore in verse 13 tells us all the commands that are going to come after this flow out of the good news that came before. And that link between gospel and obedience also works the other direction as well. It also means that when we truly believe the good news that comes before, we will therefore obey the commands that come after. If the imperatives, the commands, don't shape and transform the way we live, it means we haven't really understood or believed the indicatives. Think about what Peter's told us in those first 12 verses. One of the main things he told us, right, is that if we belong to Jesus by faith, that means we've been born again. Again, that's not a box you check on some poll to describe your religious beliefs. That's a reality of what's happened to you. And if you've been born again, that means you have a whole new life. And if we have a new life, shouldn't that lead to a new way of living It would make no sense if we lived the same way we did before we were born again, right? So now that Peter has celebrated our great salvation in Christ, he's going to tell us how we should therefore live in light of it. And in verse 13, the first command he gives us is, Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, Because you've been born again to a living hope, Now, set your hope on the grace that's coming. Now, we've said this before, but it it bears repeating. That we need to first remember that when Peter says, set your hope, he's not talking about hope the way that we often throw that word around today. Today, if we say, oh, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl, or I hope I get the job, that kind of hope means something that we want to happen, but we have no idea if it really will. It's just a desire. But in the Bible, the hope we have in Christ is not like that. It's a certain 
sure, well-grounded expectation rather than a wishful desire. It's what we know with certainty is coming, and therefore we rely on it as we look to the future. So what does Peter tell us we should set our hope like that on? Grace. Set your hope on grace. We are to set our hope on the freely given, undeserved goodness of God towards sinners. And, and what grace specifically? It's not just grace in general. He says what grace specifically? The grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this grace is all the good that God has promised is coming to those who belong to him by faith. It's our salvation from the wrath of God when he rightly judges every person based on how they've lived. It's the inheritance that he's keeping right now for us in heaven. It's the never-ending life in his presence filled with ever-increasing joy. It's the making everything new and making everything sad come untrue. It's the entering into a new age and a new world free from sin, death, and the curse. And it's the finally arriving home to the person our hearts ache for and the place we really belong. All of that is coming when Jesus is revealed. And Peter says because that's true, we should not just know it, but set our hope on that future grace. The fact that Jesus is coming back, friends, is not simply one more bullet point of stuff Christians believe. It's meant to reorient and refocus how we live every single day. And notice that he says, set your hope fully on that grace. And that's so interesting. Like he didn't need to include that word. So why does he feel compelled to include the word fully? I think it's because even as followers of Jesus, we're often tempted to divide our hopes and kind of hedge our bets, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your hope portfolio. So yes, yes, we, we absolutely, we hope in grace. But we also hope in how well we're doing as Christians. Hope in my Bible reading or hope in my involvement at church or hope in my prayer life. I hope in my good deeds. Or we set our hope on our spouse. Or set our hope on our kids. We set our hope on a certain political party. Set our hope on our bank account. Set our hope on our career path. And whatever we set our hope on, friends, shapes how we live. And in Jesus, what we're meant to see is that we have a hope that's so much better and so much more certain than anything else. More reliable than anything else. Why would we not set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus is revealed? Why would we not go all in, push all the chips in, and say, everything I have, I'm banking on him. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. So what does that look like? It means living like this isn't all there is. It means you don't spend your life chasing money and possessions because your hope is an eternal inheritance. It means you don't look for the quick fix happiness of sin because when Jesus comes back, you've got a full and forever joy coming. It means that when you make decisions and when you spend your time 
And when you shape your priorities, you do so in light of the fact that Jesus is coming one day. And when he does, he's bringing the riches of grace with him. Think about this. If you knew, and I don't mean like you had a a fantasy, but like if somehow you knew with certainty that in six months you would inherit $100 billion. That's insane. But let's just say you knew in six months $100 billion coming your way. Wouldn't that shape how you lived for the next six months? Would you really waste time trying to make a little bit more money now? Even if things were tight, even if you didn't have the thing you want, think, ah, yeah, but I think I'm just going to pick up some extra hours this week or maybe go get another job. Would you let money drive any of your decisions? Would you waste your time on things that didn't matter? Would it not change how you experience trials and suffering? Yeah, you've got this setback, but you know, well, this is going to be different in six months. Everything about your life would be different because of what you know is coming. And a hundred billion dollars, friends, can't even begin to compare to the grace that's coming to you, Christian. So set your hope fully on that grace. Peter also gives us two things in this verse that we need to do in order to set our hope fully on that grace. You see that? First, he says, preparing your minds for action. Now, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says down there that literally the phrase is girding up the loins of your mind. We have no idea what that means in our day and age. That's why they say preparing your minds for action. But Peter's painting a picture here. Because back in the day, all men would wear these long flowing robes. I don't think that's coming back anytime, but that's what they wore back then. But when they went into battle... You can't have long flowing robes. That's not going to work. So they would tuck, kind of cinch them up, tuck them up into their belts, and they get ready for battle by girding their loins, by getting rid of something that would slow them down or trip them up. They gird their loins so that they would be free to move. They could do what they needed to do to fight. In our day, the closest equivalent, we'd say, we're going to roll up our sleeves, right? Why do you roll up your sleeves? It's just, that's what, you're freed up so you can now work hard. And as Peter applies this picture to our minds, he says, if we want to set our hope fully on grace, we got to get our minds ready for serious work. We have to get ready to think clearly and deeply. Now you might say, wait a minute. I thought hoping was more a matter of like the heart. Why this focus on our minds now? What we need to understand is the path to our hearts runs through our minds. We can't hope in what we don't know. We can't love what we haven't thought about. So thinking is not enough, but there's no hoping without serious thinking. If we want to set our hope fully on grace, we need to prepare our minds for action. Getting rid of anything that would hinder us or slow us down from the serious thinking about the grace that's coming to us that we need to do. The other thing Peter says we must do to help us set our hope on grace, he said, is to be sober-minded. Now, when Peter talks about being sober-minded here, he's not talking mainly about alcohol. But that, that idea does give us a really helpful picture of what he's getting at. To understand what it means to be sober-minded, think with me about what the opposite of sober is. The opposite of sober 
is intoxicated. It's being drunk. And what Peter's warning against here is being intoxicated by the world and its ways. If we imbibe too much of the world's values and motivations, things like fear and greed and anger, if we imbibe too much of their values, their motivation, or their methods, it will make us drunk and start to blur our spiritual vision. It will distort our perception of reality. Our ability to see clearly what's true and good and beautiful will start to become a little fuzzy. Right and wrong will get a little out of focus. It will desensitize us to our sin and lower our inhibitions when doing wrong. It will make us unsteady in all our ways and easily knocked off balance. And worst of all, intoxication on the world's way of thinking will make us dull to the reality of God. We start living like he's not real. Like the gospel isn't true. Like this is all just a fairy tale or a game we play. And when our spiritual judgment is clouded like that, it gets really hard to set our hope fully on the grace that's coming to us. Here's what you need to know this morning, friends. You might never touch a drop of alcohol and yet be completely drunk on worldly desires and intoxicated by our culture's hopes. But if we're going to set our hope fully on the grace that it will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus, we need to be sober-minded. We need to see clearly what's real and what's true. Because all week long, the world is constantly shoving drinks in our hands, telling us to believe what it says is important, what it says will make you happy, what it says who you need to be, what it says you need to set your hope on. But those things, friends, are not real. The philosopher Karl Marx once famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. See, he believed that religion offered people relief from reality, a chance to get away from it. But he got it completely backwards. Gospel religion, the good news that Jesus saves sinners and welcomes us into his eternal kingdom, isn't relief from reality, it's relief in reality. It's the relief not of escaping reality, but of finally actually seeing it. The gospel opens our eyes to see what's true and real and to no longer be blinded by the God of this age and kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He is reality. And in him and his gospel, we finally see what's real. And this is one reason, friends, why we need each other in the church. As we walk through our weeks being bombarded with the world's alternate realities, all of us need to be reminded of what's really real. So every Sunday, we gather like this for a reality check. We rehearse the gospel together, and we remind one another of the reality that God is real. God is really holy. Sin is really awful. Jesus really died and rose again. He's really good and he's really coming back. And as we gather, we gather, we sing, we pray, we hear his word, we talk, and we remind each other, this is what's true. Not what you hear all week long 
in your workplace, on the TV, on your social media. That's not true. This is real. Friends, God is more real than your deepest fears. When you wake up in the morning and those things just come flying at you, C.S. Lewis said it's like a pack of wild animals descending on you. The first thing when you wake up, your mind, they come rushing at you, all the fears and worries and concerns of the day, telling you this is the biggest reality in your life. The Bible says no. What's real is that your God is for you and not against you. What's real is that he will not turn away from doing good to you. What's real is that he has promised to work everything, even our trials, together for our good for those who love him. Friends, that's real. We prepare our minds for action and we stay sober-minded so that we can set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first therefore. Because of the gospel and first 12 verses, therefore, we set our hope on grace. The second is therefore, we should also be holy like God. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now the main command here for us is be holy. But notice that before he gets there, notice how he addresses us. He tells us to be holy as obedient children. In other words, he's saying because God has become our father through our being born again, we should imitate our father. We are to be like our father. And then to help illustrate it, Peter sets up a contrast. As obedient children, he first tells us what we should not do, right? He says we should not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Okay, what does that mean? Well, before we were born again, we had an ignorance. This ignorance is an ignorance of ultimate reality. Paul describes it in Ephesians 4 when he talks about what life is like apart from Christ. He says those people walk in the futility of their minds and they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, this ignorance that Peter's talking about here, this doesn't mean we can't know anything. You can still know lots of things in this ignorance. But in the darkness of our ignorance, we can't know the most important things or the true meaning of anything. Now, we still think we know a lot. That's the hard part, and it's always been this way. People who reject the truth have always considered themselves more enlightened than they are. That's why we sang, I once was lost in darkest night. What's the next part? Yet thought I knew the way. Romans 1 tells us, claiming to be wise... They became fools. Friends, we all became fools because we ignored the main point of the universe. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through Christ and for Christ. That's why they exist. That's why you exist. Why I exist. Why this church exists. Why this world exists. Is, it's through Christ and for him. And until we know and believe that, 
We don't know the ultimate point or purpose of anything. We will misunderstand everything until light shines in our darkened ignorance to reveal the truth. And Peter says in our former ignorance, we lived according to certain passions, or the same word as desires. Paul said that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, before we knew Jesus, we did whatever we wanted. And what we wanted was wrong. And those wrong desires are the source of our sin. James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The point is that sin is not simply bad actions. Bad actions never come out of nowhere. Nobody sins because they have to. You ever thought about that? No one ever makes us sin. We sin because we want to. And the problem of sin is not that we do what we want. That's not, we're made to do what we want. It's that our wanters are broken. And we want the wrong things. But the good news is that when we are born again, we get a new heart. We get a new wanter. And our desires change. Suddenly, we desire to please God. Where did that come from? Suddenly, we desire to read his word. We desire to pray. We desire to be with his people, to worship him, to tell others about him. And yet, we're still tempted by those old desires. Which is why Peter tells us here not to be conformed to those old desires. To be conformed is like what happens when you put Play-Doh into a mold, right? It takes the shape of the mold that you put it in. And Peter's saying here, don't let your life, Christian, be conformed to the mold of your old passions. Don't be shaped by them. Don't live the way you did when you didn't know Christ. Instead, other side of the contrast, as he who called us is holy, we also are to be holy in all our conduct. We are meant to be conformed, right? But not to our old passions, but to our Heavenly Father. Because we're born again into a new family, we are meant to increasingly bear the family resemblance. And what's our Father like? Well, that's what we sang earlier. He is holy, holy, holy. He's unlike anything else. He's set apart and transcendently beautiful. He is separated from sin. And as his obedient children, we too are to be set apart and different from the unbelieving world around us. There should be clear and noticeable distinctions. And we also are to be separated from sin. As Christians, we are to reflect our Father's holiness by conforming all our thinking and our behavior to God's character revealed in Scripture and in His Son, who is the exact imprint of His nature. We need to be sure that we get our definition of holiness from his word and from his son. And then we imitate him. And we do this not only, hear this, holiness has this bad connotation. It's, you hear holiness and you hear what you abstain from. And that's part of it. But we do this not only by seeking to avoid the ugliness of sin. We do it by striving to reflect the beauty of God's holiness. We strive to reflect his goodness his mercy, his love, his patience, his forgiveness. 
And just as our holy God, we talked about earlier, dwells with the lowly and the contrite in heart to revive their spirit and do them good, so our own holiness isn't meant to keep us back from needy, suffering, hurting, messy people. It's meant to propel us toward them the same way it does our Father. And Peter says we are to be holy in all of life, in all our conduct. That means holy at church, holy when we're washing the dishes, holy when you're sending that email, holy when you're driving, holy when you're watching TV, holy in your marriage, holy in your parenting, holy in your trials, holy in your sickness, and holy in your dying. We are to be holy in all our conduct. Why? Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That quotation that Peter includes is from the book of Leviticus. And that same call to be holy, it's all over the Old Testament. It's just this call to be holy because God is holy. But that call, even though that's an Old Testament concept, it doesn't go away in the New Testament. Because what we need to understand is the gospel doesn't eliminate the call to holiness. The gospel enables and empowers the call to holiness. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That's make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, this is why Jesus died. Jesus died to make us holy. But not only that, then he gave us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us to help us be holy. And one day, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will stand before our Father and we will be perfectly holy as he is holy. Friends, we have an incredible salvation in Jesus. Therefore, let's live the way people who have a great salvation live. Let's set our hope fully on the future grace that's coming to us. And let's strive to be holy like our Father.